0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Feelings of loneliness are on the rise across the rich world, but one demographic seems to be suffering disproportionately, American men. Our correspondent finds that their shrinking friendship groups are only part of the problem. And the music charts at Christmas time used to be packed with bright young things and their glossy holiday offerings. As the streaming era spreads, they're steadily being dominated by musicians who are well into middle age, or dead. But first...
1: So let me start by saying that the inflation that we got was not at all the inflation we were looking for or talking about. In the
0: it's a frank admission from Jerome Powell, the head of America's Central Bank. The Federal Reserve has been pumping vast sums of money into the American economy. And yesterday, in response to spiking prices, it said it would speed up its plans to close those taps.
1: In light of the strengthening labor market and elevated inflation pressures, we decided to speed up the reductions in our asset purchases.
0: It's a similar story across much of the Western world, where inflation has hit multi-decade highs. So decisions today from both the European Central Bank and the Bank of England will also be dominated by inflation considerations. They're all plans made in a sea of uncertainty, with the Omicron variant now adding to matters. But the Federal Reserve's move yesterday felt decisive.
2: It was an important meeting. It was clearly a hawkish shift from Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, and the broader Fed rate-setting committee.
0: Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor.
2: It suggests that the Fed is clearly moving towards monetary tightening. At the same time, quite a lot of confidence about the overall economic condition of America, despite all of the uncertainties about the pandemic. So it was sort of mixed in the sense of both hawkish, but also quite optimistic.
0: And and the theme of the meeting, if there was one, was, was surely prices. The word inflation was used more than 70 times. That's more than the average economist editorial meeting. How, how has the Fed's thinking on inflation changed? Well, it's no
2: surprise, Jason, that inflation should have come up so much. You know, one of the key elements of the Fed's mandate is to have stable prices. And right now, prices are anything but stable. But, you know, what was interesting with the press conference was the way that Jerome Powell laid out the evolution of the way that the Fed has been viewing inflation.
1: Inflation really popped up right in the the late spring last year. And we had a view, it was very, very widely held in the forecasting community, that this would be temporary. It was quite narrow. A limited number of, of factors were causing it. And there was a decent amount of evidence to support that view, that it would be temporary
2: or transitory, as we said. So transitory is the key word in that passage. You know, for a long time, the Fed and many economists thought that a lot of the price increases that we've been seeing this year were because of ephemeral things. But, you know, recently, Jerome Powell said that it was time to retire the word transitory. His views had changed. Then in September, I'd say after Labor Day, we started to see,
1: it started to become clear that this was both larger in its effect on inflation and more persistent. And of course, I said so on on many occasions. And one
2: of the consequences of that is that we moved the taper forward. We moved the taper forward. So with this taper, it's really the first key step towards tightening of monetary policy. The Fed, one of the ways that it had been pumping stimulus into the economy is that with rates near to zero, it was buying a whole host of government bonds plus mortgage-related bonds every single month. Starting a couple of months ago, they began to reduce the number of bonds they, they were buying. This is the taper. They want to get down to zero, that is not buying any bonds, before they increase interest rates. And this meeting will accelerate the timetable for that.
0: And what's your view here? Is that a good idea? Should they be tapering faster? And will that do enough to, to fight rising prices?
2: There is no question that an acceleration of the taper makes sense given the conditions, given how high inflation is running right now. So previously, the pace at which they were tapering would have had them getting to zero asset purchases by June, which would then set up the Fed for potentially raising interest rates around the middle of next year. Now they've effectively doubled the pace. They'll get to zero in March, so they could potentially be raising interest rates as early as March. You know, will it be enough? Well, it's not going to stop inflation in its tracks. I mean, the way that prices work, there's a lot of momentum that's built up in the system, and, and you can't just simply turn on a dime like this. But I think there is reason to think that it will eventually work. And certainly the market thinks so. If you look at the market reaction to what the Fed announced yesterday, stocks actually went up. So there's a belief that the economy is in good shape and that the Fed is, is finally doing what it needs to do to tackle inflation.
0: And this is all happening as we're seeing some really troubling numbers and headlines about the Omicron variant. What role do you think that's played in the Fed's decision making?
2: Well, I mean, clearly Omicron's having a huge impact on the way that everybody is living their lives and thinking about their holiday plans in the West. And so you would think that it would have a big impact on, on what the Fed is doing. It's actually remarkable, though, the extent to which the Fed's decisions are looking through the latest surge in the pandemic. I think
1: if you look at the state of the economy and, and the amount, the strength of demand, the strength of just overall demand, the strength of demand for labor... Look at inflation look at look at wages I, I I think moving forward the end of our taper by a few months is is really is really an appropriate thing to do and i think really omicron doesn't
2: doesn't really uh have much. To do with that, So, I mean, Powell and the Fed are not denying the seriousness of, of the pandemic, but the point is that it, it just has created so much uncertainty and the underlying reality, and this trend has kind of pulled through wave after wave of the pandemic, is that as time has gone on, the economy has, has gotten stronger and stronger. And America, as with other countries, has sort of learned to live with the virus. And the Fed's basic bet right now is that despite the transmissibility of Omicron, that will still be the case next year.
0: And as you say, inflation is a problem not just in America, but around the world. What, what are other central banks doing?
2: That's absolutely right. And the Fed's not going to be the first central bank to raise interest rates. Uh, Norway, New Zealand have, have already been doing that to a certain extent. But it is certainly the first major central bank. To be moving in that direction. And you know, that makes sense because if you look at inflation, although clearly it's a global phenomenon, it has been more pronounced in America. The, you know, overall inflation rate is running about two percentage points higher than in Europe. Consumer demand in America has been incredibly strong. Arguably that's one of the factors that has spilled over into broader global inflation. And the Fed, I think, will be a trendsetter in this regard.
0: Is that to say, then, that the Fed has inflation and, and the American economy under control, then?
2: It's interesting. You know, a couple of times, Powell went out of his way to defend the way that the Fed had responded to the crisis. We're coming out of a, you know, what we, we certainly hope will be a once-in-a-lifetime, certainly
1: historic, the first really global modern pandemic, which looked at the beginning like it might cause a global depression. And, you know, so we threw a lot of support at it. And, you know, people will judge in 25 years whether we, whether we overdid it or not. But, uh, you know, the reality is we are where we are. And, you know, we think our policy
2: is is the right one for for the situation that we're in. And, and I think what he says there is is absolutely true. I mean, these were truly unprecedented circumstances. And given the possibility that things would have been calamitous for the economy, it made sense for the Fed and for the government more generally To throw more or less everything that it had at the pandemic economically, putting the foot on the accelerator was absolutely the right thing. There certainly is a case to be made that the Fed was a little bit late with shifting from the accelerator to the brake, but it is doing so now. And if it were to slam the brakes too harshly, you better believe it would be judged quite badly for that as well. So it's a delicate balance. I think on the whole, the fact that they are going towards the brake does raise confidence that inflation will, as long as the pandemic gets under control, inflation will get under control as well.
0: Thanks very much for joining us, Simon.
2: Thank you, Jason.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom
3: According to studies, many men say they have no close friendships. And three in four report receiving all their emotional support from their wife or girlfriend, often the moment they come home. In
0: a recent episode of NBC's Saturday Night Live, the long-running sketch show depicted American men as emotionally stunted, lonely.
3: When I walk in the door, my husband sort of rockets information at me for 25 minutes straight. On a
4: football team there's 11 players, but with rugby there's
3: 15. And all the words come out fast and in the wrong order because he hasn't spoken to anyone else that day.
0: The tongue-in-cheek solution for exasperated women was a place they could take their needy partners to help them build relationships.
3: Where would I even go? Finally, there's a place with Man Park. It's like a dog park, but for guys in relationships, so they can make friends and have an outlet besides... Saturday
0: Night Live is taking a lighthearted approach to loneliness here, but it's becoming a serious problem for the modern American male.
3: Generally speaking, across the rich world, people are working longer hours, marrying later.
0: Me and Ridge is The Economist's U.S. news editor.
3: There seems to be a direct link between social media usage, which has obviously gone up a lot, and loneliness. Time spent online means less time building friendships, which is a time-consuming business. There's also suggestions that parents are spending a lot more time with their children than they did in the past, which, again, leaves less time for friendship. So all these factors seem to be making many people around the world lonelier. But men in the US seem to be particularly badly affected.
0: Why why is that? Why are American men uh, exceptions here?
3: Well, the U.S. is the world's most individualistic country. Research has shown that nations that score high on that metric tend to have greater levels of loneliness. It also has one of the highest divorce rates in the world, and evidence shows that men are more likely to lose mutual friends after a breakup. The fact that America is also one of the most geographically mobile countries in the world probably also is part of the problem. People in the US move often extremely long distances for work, meaning that friendships are likely to be lost or weakened in the process. Another possible factor is that America is fast becoming less religious. That's a change that's happened in Europe over a longer period of time. In America, it's happening quite fast. And it could be that the loss of community that comes with the loss of religious observance is also making a difference here.
0: But aside from that religion question, is any of this new? Aren't a lot of those other factors just manifestations of the American way, that strong work ethic, that picking up and going anywhere to work?
3: Yeah, a lot of those cultural themes are consistent, but research does show that loneliness is increased enormously among Americans and particularly among men. There was a report published earlier this year by the Survey Center on American Life, which is part of the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank, which found that friendship groups among all demographic groups have shrunk rapidly over the last 30 years. But the decline has been particularly notable among men So in 1990, 55% of men reported having at least six close friends and today only 27% do. And the survey also found that around one in six American men have no close friendships at all, which is a five-fold increase in the last 30 years.
0: And so that change is driven by the factors you mentioned earlier about divorces, the internet, the newest vision of pursuing the American dream?
3: So those are all contributing factors, but those who study male loneliness believe that there's a particularly American version of masculinity that's also in part to blame. Robert Garfield, a psychotherapist who's written a book called Breaking the Male Code, has run men's therapeutic groups called Friendship Labs since the 90s. And they've shown him that men crave emotional connections, but are taught from childhood not to pursue them. He says American boys are brought up to believe that successful men exhibit particular traits like restraint and independence and competitiveness. And those traits are very important, but they're taught in isolation from others, like the ability to express feelings, and that can become very problematic. He uh, also reckons that other societal changes are both exacerbating and highlighting the problem of male loneliness. So, for example, as women's and uh, LGBT groups have become more prominent. They've projected different sort of notions of friendship, much more emotional portrayals of friendship. And men are now being asked to question their hyper-masculine approach that they've grown up with. And he reckons that over time, this is likely to have a positive effect on the way men relate to each other. But in the meantime, they're in a sort of fighting phase where they're reacting against what they see in social media.
0: And, and, And what costs are there for men being in that fighting phase?
3: So research has linked loneliness among all groups to poor health, even early death. It seems that loneliness can make men angry and violent and young men also commit suicide at much higher rates than young women. Research from another psychologist, Niobe Way, followed hundreds of boys from childhood into late adolescence. And she says it's no coincidence that this happens around the same age that boys move away from close friendships. She says that in childhood, boys tend to be as open as girls about their need for and love of their friends. But by the age of about 15, many boys start saying they don't need friends and worrying that having close friendships will make them seem girly. Interestingly, she says that race plays a big part in this view and it's far more prevalent among white boys and black. But obviously this also affects women who are partnered to men. Dr Garfield points out that two-thirds of divorces are initiated by women, many of whom complain their husbands are emotionally incompetent. Now, divorce rates in America are falling, but they're rising above the older population. So it seems that while the inability of many men to express their feelings isn't new, women are increasingly unlikely to put up with it.
0: Thanks very much for joining
3: us, Mian. Thank you, Jason.
0: You know them. They're all but unavoidable, and they start earlier every year. They're the classics. You got your hall decking, you got your 12 Days of Christmas... You got your Jingle Bells. I'm gonna spare you on the uh, Jingle Bell Rock. Sure, they're harmless and timeless. They're around every year, on radio stations, in grocery stores, over at Grandma's house. But they won't stop there. Now, they're invading the Christmas music charts.
4: The Christmas music charts always used to be this battle between the, the main artists of the moment, see who could be Christmas number one. But in recent years, there's been this weird trend where many of the songs making it to the top 10 have been ancient tracks from 50 years ago or more. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. On Christmas Day five years ago, every single song in America's top ten was a new release. By last year, six out of the ten songs in the top ten were old ones, and five of them were more than half a century old. What do you reckon is, is driving this change? I think it's all about streaming, really. I mean, the charts used to be put together by a combination of physical sales and radio plays, and before that they even counted things like jukebox plays. You know, the charts have adapted to how people listen to music. And of course, the way people listen to music now mostly is streaming. And so Billboard, which puts together one of the most watched um, charts in the United States, gives the most weight now to the number of streams that a song gets. And the way that people stream music is a bit different to the way that people bought physical music. You wouldn't have gone out to buy, say, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You year after year, unless you were an eccentric kind of person. But you may well end up listening to it on your Christmas playlist every year as you're decorating the tree, wrapping the presents, all of that kind of thing and so the top 10 now uh, is really pretty different from how it was in the days when they measured it by counting record sales and the upshot is that those old classics are the ones that have shot up the rankings
0: and what does that mean for the artists the ones who aren't making it number one with their new release and the the, one, the old ones who thought their songs were done Well, it changes
4: the the economics of it, too. I mean, it's it's not just the charts. It's all about how people get paid. Um, So, again, in the olden days, you know, you'd release your single, your album, you'd sell a load of records then, and then people who owned the album could listen to it at home as often as they want, and they wouldn't have to pay you again. Nowadays, it's different. Every time somebody streams a song, a tiny amount of money goes to the rights holder of that song. And so those old songs, those old classics, which had probably, um, you know, stopped selling actual physical records some time ago, are once again earning a pretty steady stream of income. I notice you say rights holder of
0: the song, not necessarily artist. What, What does that mean for who's holding the rights?
4: Well, sometimes it's the same person. Sometimes the the artist owns the rights, but they have the option of selling those rights. And in recent years, we've seen lots of artists choosing to do exactly that. Bob Dylan was a famous example about a year ago. He sold his collection to Universal Music. I think all this market activity really is a result of the fact that the back catalogs of these sort of fairly, you know, oldish but enduringly popular artists, let's say, their back catalogs now are worth a lot more than they were in the day when it was all about physical sales, about record sales. Now in the streaming era, they're they're making dependable regular income once again.
0: And so, on the basis of all that, any guesses as to what's going to be in the, in the top ten this Christmas, or is it going to be, well, kind of what it has been for the past few years?
4: I think it's all going to feel fairly familiar. I mean, if you look, last year, Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas Is You, was number two. I think the year before that, she was number one. By the 1st of December this year, she was already number 12 and, and rising, so I suspect we can probably expect to see her um, fairly near the top of the charts again. And no
0: way is she selling
4: the rights to that tune. I doubt it. Tom, thanks very much for your
0: time, and Merry Christmas. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.